everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host as always, Carrie Parker, and we've got a spooky show for you today. We're going to be talking about ghosts, uh, but not the kind of ghosts that you're familiar with. Uh, these are the eavesdropping kind of ghosts. Um, this all has to do with a law that was just passed in Australia and an article that I read uh, on the EFF blog from a Danny O'Brien. And Danny O'Brien is our guest today. I'm going to talk with him at length about this. And it's similar to a law that was passed in the UK a couple of years ago that's been nicknamed the Snoopers Charter. And as you may guess, these laws grant the government broad powers in demanding that communication systems essentially break their products to allow allow the government to snoop on people. And however you may feel, however you may feel about that, and I've got mixed feelings myself. Um, we have a great discussion where we break it all down and get into the nitty gritty and talk about what these things really mean, how these things really work, what the real implications are for the companies and for citizens. Uh, it's a very important discussion. There's no reason to believe we will not be looking at similar kind of legislation here in the United States, particularly if there's another terrorist attack, God forbid. Um, and we need to be prepared. We need to understand the long-term effects and the real far-reaching implications of, of what these laws are, are doing to democracy and society. So without further ado, uh, we'll, let's, we'll jump into that. One quick note, of course, stay tuned at the end. I've got another update on the Pod Centennial. That's the 100th episode. That's only two more after this one. So I've got some great stuff coming up. We've got some prizes and everything. So stay tuned to the end. I'll give you a little more information on that. But now let's talk with Danny O'Brien from the EFF about the ghost on the wire. All right, and as promised, we are here with Danny O'Brien. He's been an activist for online free speech and privacy for over 20 years, co-founder of the Open Rights Group, and is currently international director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Welcome to the show, Danny. It's good to be here. Okay, uh, I'd like to, I found your name from reading this article, and, and I'd like to kind of set things up by just reading the uh, the lead here. Um, so we'll start with that, and then I'm going to start asking you some questions about this. So sure. from the article, it says, uh, With indecent speed and after the barest nod to debate, the Australian Parliament has now passed the Assistance and Access Act, unopposed and unamended. The bill is a cousin to the United Kingdom's Investigatory Powers Act, passed in 2016. The two laws vary in their details, but both now deliver a panoptic new power to their nation's governments. Both countries now claim the right to securely to secretly compel tech companies and individual technologists, including network administrators, sysadmins, and open-source developers, to re-engineer software and hardware under their control so that it can be used to spy on their users. Engineers can be penalized for refusing to comply with fines and prison. In Australia, even counseling a technologist to oppose these orders is a crime. We don't know because it's a state secret whether the UK has already taken advantage of its powers, but this month we had some strong statements from GCHQ about why about what they plan to do with them. And because the Five Eyes Coalition of Intelligence-Gathering Countries has been coordinating this move for some time, we can expect Australia to shortly make the same demands. Ian Levy, GCHQ's technical director, recently posted on the Lawfare blog that what GCHQ wants tech companies to do. Buried in a post full of justifications, Levy explained that GCHQ wants secure messaging services like WhatsApp, Signal, Wire, and iMessage to create deceitful user interfaces that hide who private messages are being sent to. Okay, so it goes on from there. Um, but uh, let, let's start by unpacking that. So what exactly would this law require companies to change about their messaging service? Now, my understanding 
is that it's not actually asking for what we usually refer to as a true backdoor. It sounds more like a BCC. Right. That that's that's certainly one way of of thinking about it. Um, I think it's important to separate the two things that we we talked about in uh, or I talked about in that article. Um, the first one is the new power that the government is obtaining, and that's an incredibly broad power. So essentially, both in the Investigatory Powers Act in the UK and the um, Assistance and Access Act in Australia, um, the government is claiming the power to be able to uh, approach under a gag order, so the, the people that they approach can't speak about it, and request them to do pretty much anything that would enable the government to obtain um, the contents of a communication uh, uh, under the system that those people are building. So that's very that's very broadly rewritten. Um, there is some language in there about it, you know, it having to be, you know, proportionate in some way, mm. or um, in the Australian one in particular, companies were very keen to put in something that says, you know, it's not too expensive. But um, uh, the, the only people who determine that are, are within the government. Um, um, the feedback is, is requested, but it, they don't have to listen to anyone. So that's the power. That's a vast power. <laughs> I, that, so so I, I think it's important to underline, uh, you know, if you have a mobile phone, then that mobile phone is just a, a fistful of sensors, right? It's got mm -hmm. an accelerometer, it's got a geolocating device, it's got a microphone, it's got a camera. The only thing that stops that from being like an incredibly invasive spying device is the software that runs on it. And that software decides when the microphone turns on and gives you control over your own device. If there's a third party, um, which in this case is the Australian or the British government, that can change that programming on that phone, then it's no longer your phone and it's, 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 it's primarily a, a, a spying device. So, so, so that's the, the breadth of the, the new law. What we're talking about in the second part is the ghost. And the mm -hmm. ghost is a specific um, uh, tactic, if you were, that GCHQ, uh, the British um, uh, intelligence service, uh, wants to try out using these new laws. And we only know that because they're kind of doing a, a publicity round of that. Mm. They're posting to blog posts that, that um, both security professionals and uh, lawyers and politicians read. And they're sort of going, well, how about we did this? Mm -hmm. I think they're doing that because they realize that this, what they do initially with this huge power is really going to define how people react to it, um, at least initially. If they overstep the mark to begin with, then people are going to wake up to the fact that this is a broad new government power. Um, so what they're proposing, I think they feel is, is, is reasonable. And um, fortunately, most other technologists, cryptographers, and security professionals uh, really don't think something called the ghost that, as you say, is a BCC uh, really cuts it as a proportionate uh, surveillance system. 
So, but I think that's a key point because for as a technologist and somebody who follows the technological aspects of this from the from the cryptographers of the world, they've been saying for so long that we can't you can't break encryption. You can't put in a back door. You can't create a door that only good guys can go through. Um, right. And but this is not that. At least not. You're right. What the GCHQ folks were were explaining. This is actually kind of a. A, a novel, a novel approach, and that is because in some of these messaging services, like iMessage, already work this way. When you're doing, you know, multi-party communications, it's actually multi-point-to-point communications, each individually encrypted, and all this would be, either adding a device or adding another channel, so to speak, is kind of adding a, a, like you said, a ghost, a third party to this conversation, which makes one-to-one conversations turn into group conversations, or an N group conversation turn into an N plus one group conversation. But it yeah. doesn't actually affect so, the, the encryption. So, uh, so first of all, let's let's spell out what what this is to your, your viewers. So, the idea with the ghost, and let's use the example of iMessage. The idea of the ghost would be that in iMessage, you can get your um, your chats on a number of different devices, right? So, you enroll when you buy a, a, an exciting new iPad, right? You can enroll that into your set of devices that you own and that means that when you get a notification on a message it not just goes it doesn't just go to your phone um it goes to your new ipad and mm-hmm. it could go to your 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 mac as well and so what uh gchq is proposing is that they can order apple to enroll another device in your your set so there will be your ipad your phone your mac and Mr. GCHQ. And so when a totally encrypted message goes out um, to you or from you, it will also get sent and de- decrypted by that by that device. So the claim here is, and it, I always feel this is sort of a semantic debate, right, mm. is that that's not really a backdoor because it's not breaking the encryption. Everybody's encrypted. It's just it happens that the ghost, GCHQ, is one of the people that gets that message is encrypted. Well, when we talk about the risks of breaking secure communicating uh, 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 clients, we're not just talking about the basic cryptographic primitives. When you view something like this, you're viewing it as a secure system as a whole. And this has a couple of um, effects. One is... If you break the premises of that uh, uh, secure system, it's as broken and backdoored as if you'd, you know, suddenly worked out a way of being able to um, factor large numbers. Mm. Um, and that's what you're, you're, you're doing in this case. And in particular, what you're doing is you're having to, like, lie to the end user about how many mm-hmm. devices they've got. So that's the, that's the kind of this is, this is a backdoor um, under another name. The second thing, though, I think is also important to bear in mind, right, which is that flaws like this, just like flaws in the mathematics, are seen as as uh, cryptographic flaws in the whole system. What this really is, is an attack is an attack on the management of of keys. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's an ongoing cryptographic problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we get the right keys to the right people? One of the, the features of strong cryptography, which is what end-to-end encryption is based on, is actually not so much about the mathematics of, of enciphering something. 
It's about how do you get that key to the other person. And the great thing about public key cryptography is that's a pretty easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, we're going to add another key secretly. And cryptographers very reasonably go, well, actually, that's one of the set of problems that we've always been trying to solve. And we have some ideas on how to solve that. And um, we haven't really rolled out those solutions because the current solutions in practice are fine, right? Like you, you assume that your end device is, is, is trustworthy to a certain extent. So um, cryptographers look at this and go, okay, how do we fix this problem in the encryption? Because if GCHQ can do it, some, so can someone mm -hmm. else. So what we're looking at now is a situation where a bunch of cryptographers are going, okay, we have some solutions to these problems. And the question is, do you allow companies and designers to uh, improve the security of their products? Because obviously, if iMessage or WhatsApp put in a fix for this problem, the governments of the world are going to freak out and go, you're not allowed to fix our back door. Um, and, and they'll escalate, right? Yeah. They'll go on to, to try and find some other solution to this. And the, the final part of this is that one of the reasons why it's a flaw is that it's detectable, right? So if you think that there's an extra key on your phone, that means that your phone has to encrypt now not to your, just to your three computers, right? It has to encrypt to this fourth mysterious party. Well, I, I haven't looked at this at a protocol level, but I think we can argue, and um, uh, the technologists at EFF have been looking at this, that that will send a huge honking signal on the, on the wire and on your device, right? Because in layman's terms, if you're encrypting to four people, it's going to be bigger, right? Yeah, it's yeah. going to, you're going to have to like make it larger. And uh, there are a bunch of other telltale signs. So it doesn't get the, the spooks what they want, because what they want is to recreate wiretapping. And the great beauty from the point of view of the spies, uh, um, the great beauty of wiretapping is you can't see it. Right, mm -hmm. you can't. Somebody puts those wire taps on your phone. Um, apart from, you know, in the good old days, you might hear some scratching or, or, or your voice being played back at the end when they forget to cut off the connection <laughs> and play back the tape. Right, that's that's invisible. With end-to-end -end encryption, at the very least, what you're doing on that person's device is probably detectable because it's on their device, right? They've got it in their hand. They have complete control over it, with the very exception of what the government is trying to demand that these developers do. So you, you brought up wiretapping, and that leads right into my next question, which is, how are these new laws really any fundamentally more different than the lawful intercept laws we've had, like, for instance, in the U.S. for decades? The the CALEA and some of these other uh, laws that, that basically tell telecom companies that they must have facilitate and have a way to tap phone lines right and we've been doing that for years how is this different well it's always different right because something like lawful intercept is always a balance between what uh law enforcement or the intelligence services want and 
the effect it's going to have on the security and the civil liberties, frankly, of end users. So if we go back to the early days of wiretaps, when the government was trying to work out what it was going to be able to do, um, uh, there's a great testimony by um, AT&T, by Bell, um, talking about how this is an awful violation of the Fourth Amendment. And um, uh, the negotiation that those companies had and the, the public had about what the government should be able to do was partly about like, well, you know, does this mean that the government gets to listen into every conversation? And like, no, right. If we physically put wires on this, then we only get to listen to one person and there will set up a warrant system and so forth. Right? So it's a balancing act. Clear is a really interesting thing, right? Because the balancing act that there was then determined was that, um, there should be lawful intercept powers for um, traditional telephony, but not for the internet. Um, because the recognition there was that a combination of the internet is in its infancy. And secondly, we really don't know what would happen if we try to map the, the, a previous sort of analogy onto, onto mm. the internet. Um, Al and lawful interceptors sort of crept into the internet, sort of by virtue of the people who provide telephony to you ending up using TCPIP to get their messages around, and uh, and governments being able to sort of like ride on the back of that move, right? If they've already got a deal with Verizon to be able to conduct wiretaps. It doesn't really change anything if Verizon switches from using, um, uh, you know, copper wire or some other uh, direct connection to using TCP/IP. But it does mean that something like Skype, for instance, which we're using, um, <laughs> Skype doesn't have that lawful intercept feature because to create it, you would have to re-engineer Skype in a way that that, that putting uh, wire clips on a phone line uh, doesn't it doesn't have like that same analogy so we always change what we do based on how it affects the bigger system and the civil liberties of people this is a great case because uh in this in order to achieve something that kind of looks maybe if you squint at it kind of like a wiretap um we're having to give the governments of these countries huge secret powers hmm. and it's a it's 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 a bit like saying you know we would love the police to be able to solve all crimes that would be great therefore they should be able to arrest anybody they want or go into anybody's house and find out if there's any evidence of that like that they will probably solve a lot more crimes if <laughs> right. they get those powers right right but the effect on society would be would be terrible Right. And by the way, we've been throwing around Kali. I, I started it. I admit it. I copped to it. But it, it's, a, it's the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act. Like oh, a, yes. Mid -90s Sorry, I, 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 I threw it out we myself, were, so I should have said something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. So this, let's go back to the law and, um, a little bit and the Australian law and maybe the, the UK law as well. But under what circumstances um, would this law allow the government to compel compliance? Like, does it require a, a court-certified warrant? 
um, is this warrant or is the scope of surveillance constrained in any kind of way, you know, by length of time or participants or devices or that sort of thing? Do we know? No, it's not. Uh, uh, it's a no to any of those things. So wow. in both the um, Australia and the UK, there's sort of a fake court, one would say, that um, that has judges on it. I believe they're retired judges in the mm. UK. Um and they can sort of look at these orders as they go past. And um, they're, they're constrained to say, look, you didn't fill this form in correctly. Um, they, they can't really sort of challenge the entire system. Wow. So, so there, isn't, there isn't a court in the process. Uh, your other questions were, were, are there any constraints? There are sort of constraints that are determined by the people making the order right so the secretary of state in the united kingdom has to satisfy satisfy himself <laughs> that he is be, he is being proportionate about what he, he or she is doing you know you i i say this and it, it sounds kind of terrible um and i i do want to sort of like fence this in a little bit which is to say that it's surprising how much like language like that in many societies actually does hold back uh, reasonable law enforcement officials, right? Like they do want to follow the rules. And if the rules say this kind of thing, it, do it does have an effect, right? And I mm -hmm. think we can see that in the ghost right now is that I think what's happened is that GCHQ has gone to these companies we'd like you to implement the ghost and they've gone, no, that's a terrible idea. And to perhaps their credit, they haven't gone, we have a piece of paper here that says that you mm -hmm. absolutely have to do it. Right. What they're doing now is going out into public opinion to sort of get more support for this yeah. before they go back with the understanding that these companies, if everybody else says seems okay to us, are more likely to not kick up a fuss. So it does have some kind of effect, but you don't have checks and balances for reasonable police officers and nice ministers <laughs> when there's nothing absolutely pressing going on, right? right? You have these checks and balances when either you have someone who likes to ignore the letter, the, the spirit of the law, or we're in some post-terrorist attack where the general public and the government are clamoring for broad sweeping powers. That's when you want checks and balances. And there's none of, none of that in, in either of these uh, laws. So what would happen if a company or software developer, you know, if it was just an individual guy like me writing a piece of software, what, what would happen if they refused to comply? And I believe in the Australian case, they had it broken down in like a tiers. Like there was a first tier. It's like, you know, do what you can. Second one was, okay, do, do a little bit more. And the third one was, no, you really got to do something. I, I forget what they yeah. call them. They had, they had so, some weird levels, but what happens if they re, if they refuse? So, so I, I have, I have some questions about this, right? And it's partly because I'm, I'm not a Australian or a British criminal lawyer. Um, so, and it's, it's sort of unstated explicitly in the laws particularly in the UK law. Um, my read of the UK law is that it ends up being kind of like contempt of court. 
um, in that you're defying a court order, except it's not a court order. Mm. <laughs> so a judge would be would have pretty broad powers to do whatever is necessary to compel you, include fines and, 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 and imprisonment. I mean, this is not a civil um, mm. violation. You could you could conceivably go to jail. Um, that's sort of super extreme, especially as this is a um, secret order, mm. right? So, it, 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 again, one of the things about these kind of bills is because they, they sort of work the wrong way in that they go, we would like to have wiretaps. So we would like all the powers that are necessary for us to get wiretaps. And if it turns out that in order to get wiretaps, you need to imprison someone secretly for a <laughs> unknown length of time until they comply, yeah. right? Nobody's really thought that bit out. So I don't know what happens, and I'm pretty sure the people that wrote this don't know what <laughs> happens if people, if people don't comply, except it would not be pleasant. And, uh, you know, we, we at EFF would have photos of the person who had disappeared, oh. right? It would be a major civil liberties violation but of course like you don't necessarily have have to get to that place to have all the bad effects of this of this oh year, sure right right so and and i mean to to be specific so one of the things that was sort of weird about when we were trying to raise the the uh, fuss about the investigatory powers bill that passed a couple of years ago is that i and my colleague eva galperin were writing these papers going our reading of the language here suggests that it's not just British Telecom who would have to comply or Apple, right? It's individual engineers and developers. So if the best way to undermine iMessage is to go up to the open source developer, Australian open source developer of, say, a library mm -hmm. that the um, iPhone uses, and the iPhone, I was looking at the, the legal documents that you can look at on iPhone. iPhone uses an awful lot of open source code, right? Mm. Um, then they can they can do that, right? So so and this was a hypothetical that we spelled out. And we were extremely worried about that because maybe Tim Cook can fight off these things <laughs> and an individual developer right, really yeah. can't, right? They're gonna be scared. Um, and uh, there was a little bit amongst the Home Secretary's uh, officials who were going, oh, no, we would never do that. That's not what <laughs> right, the law is right, written right. To, to do. And so we said, here are some amendments that will make that clear. Mm -hmm. And they they were ignored. Come the Australian bill, the Australian bill, and you, uh, you, you've, re you've read at least parts of it, and you don't need to read a lot of it to get to the, that table you describe, right, where it's pretty explicit that says, <laughs> you know, if you're a coder, if you touch this software, if you are part of the service that distributes this software, if you uh, uh, work on the import and export, if you put this software on your machines, like you can be individually targeted with these orders, right? So that affects open source developers. It affects um, distributors of software. So uh, download sites, Debian, FTP masters, um, someone handing software to another person, FedEx. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it affects a huge swathe of, uh, of people. 
and individuals in particular who who you know would have to hire a lawyer to even begin to to fight off these these orders so okay going the other way assuming assuming a company does comply with this with this directive um and they alter their software uh do we have a sense of whether or not the law enforcement will then be able to execute future surveillance orders without any further assistance from the company in other words would it be like a permanent are they asking for like a permanent it's kind of a solution where, okay, now that you've got that set up, we don't even have to come talk to you about this anymore because that's there and we can just use it whenever we want. So uh, I will I will speak to the British law because I haven't actually looked at the Australian law with this lens. The British law is uh, goes into rather more... The British law basically has a set of different powers and the Australian law kind of boiled that down into, into a, a, a much smaller set. And under the British law, if I recall correctly, um, uh, you you can you can do both. Basically, you can do things that 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 are um, individual sort of changes that exist for the the purposes of a particular investigation, and then kind of go away. Um, and more long term technical capability changes, which um, which are permanent um and the two work in tandem right what happens is you create the technical capability right and then you sort of turn that on and turn that off at will i remember apple um complaining about that one i think this had to do with the san bernardino case where they wanted right they wanted they tried they wanted to compel apple to create a a supposedly one-off version of their software that would allow them to break a phone and I think Apple's basic right. response was, well, yeah, as soon as they do that once, we, you could do it every time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the San Bernardino case was very much a deliberate attempt by the FBI to establish a legal precedent mm-hmm. that would give them the same sort of powers that these laws give Australian and British uh, uh, law enforcement intelligence agencies by statute. Um, and... Uh, the the pattern of that is is very similar. Like the reason why they tried to do that in that particular court case is because it was a horrific terrorist attack. It was a horrific terrorist attack, pretty close to Apple's headquarters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, it's in California, and um, there was a feeling that that it would be unclear whether the public would support Apple or the government in this uh, in this uh, environment. And that's important, you know, that that has an effect on on judges. If judges look and everybody is crying for the government to have this power, Mm. then they're more likely to make a decision that way. If people say, no, we want our phones to be secure, judges are liable to to take that into account too. We didn't get to that in San Bernardino because actually it began to look like Apple was winning (laughs) the public public debate. uh, partly because Apple was pointing out, hey, you you locked this phone down. Like, <laughs> right. you typed the password in three times and right. locked it down. Two, the police had to admit that there wasn't any particular useful data that they were looking for on that phone. And three, an Israeli company popped up and said, mm-hmm. you don't even need to do this. We could, <laughs> right. we could crack the cone ourselves. So um, the whole thing kind of backed down. But the you're absolutely right in what you say that the once you've done this once you've established the precedent 
And at that point, the police are much more capable of coming in and saying, could you add this one more feature that would be make things a lot easier for us? Uh, and they, they would have very little way of pushing back. So uh, bringing this a little bit back to the US, and I, I actually hope we have plenty of listeners from Australia and the UK, but uh, bringing this back close to my home anyway, uh, um, Australia is part of this thing they call the Five Eyes Group of Nation. Uh, and it's a, yeah. you know, the US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And um, you know, they cooperate and they share intelligence information. They have some sort of, I don't know if it's a formal treaty or whatever, but it's at least nicknamed mm-hmm. the Five Eyes. Um, right. Because of that, because of these these treaties, these relationships we have, do the Australian laws and the UK laws actually have effect for us, for US citizens here back home? Um, so they have an effect in, in, in one sense, which is that um, if the Australian and the British have these powers, they can obtain data using these powers and then feed it back to the US. Mm-hmm. So I, as you can probably tell i'm a brit and in brit there's an install there are um there are installations in the uk um which are big spying stations and the understanding was is that those spy stations were doing things like spying on the americans right because Hmm. the gchq can't can't spy i'm sorry the nsa in theory, cannot surveil American citizens. Britain can. Right. So the assumption was, is what happens is that America spies on Britain, Britain (laughs) spies on America, and then we sort of pull our information. Um, The the Five Eyes have always denied that this is at the level of the BBC, uh, the, 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 the GCHQ, like handing the communications of American citizens over to um the nsa but at at a certain high level that doesn't really matter if they come to conclusions based on intercepting americans then they will pass that communication over so at that level if australia and britain have these powers they will um give the nsa effective an effective ability to to use those powers um the other thing though is that uh, when the British law passed, uh, Theresa May, who was then the Home Secretary who who, mm. who who wrote this law, said that their hope was that this would become the gold standard for surveillance around the world. And what you're seeing here with Britain and now Australia is the attempt to establish this as a reasonable norm, right? That people go... Well, you know, if the British and the Australians are doing mm. it, we're not a million miles away from their legal system. Um, why, why not us? Right? So why not us? That's and, actually a perfect segue. Are we are we looking at similar laws here? And what are the what's the likelihood of something like that to pass? Well, EFF would argue that we're unlikely to get these laws, or if we do get them, we won't get them for very long because they are um, uh, unconstitutional. Mm. Right, they, they they would they would be a violation. We submitted an amicus in the San Bernardino case. We feel very strongly that um, compelling Apple to write code at the behest of the U.S. government is actually a violation of the First Amendment. Not mm. even we're not even touching the the, the Fourth Amendment here, uh, and that's because part of the First Amendment protections in the United States involved compelled speech 
Mm. Um, you can't, you, the government can't give you an order to say, I, I think this person is guilty or I mm. am ashamed of my actions in this, right? You, you, it, that's a, that's a medieval punishment and we don't allow people to do it. Um, you can't, the US government can't compel you to sign documents that you would not ordinarily sign um, uh, if you weren't under duress. Mm. Um, like confessions, but like, you know, other other contracts too. Uh, in the San Bernardino case, it was interesting because there was a very specific analogy to that because obviously Apple has to digitally sign their mm. software to yeah. run on their phone. So our argument was is that you were – you're you're giving this you're compelling uh, uh, Apple to 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 speak to interesting uh, in, in the form of this code, and then you're getting them to sign and say this this is genuinely our our our, um, our code, and you know we weren't compelled to do this. So so we're pretty confident that that this would, judges would see this kind of law as as unconstitutional. That doesn't stop. Um, lawmakers try <laughs> and um, you know there are a lot of laws that are passed that are then discovered to be unconstitutional there are a lot of laws that you would think would be con- unconstitutional but they haven't actually reached the Supreme Court yet so uh, so that's our position more so pragmatically are there any kind of attempts to introduce this sort of law and we've seen rumbles of this kind of thing. Um, but I think the two things constraining it are, one, people are waiting to see how the Australian and British laws will actually pan out. And two, bluntly, we haven't had a, a terrorist attack that would <laughs> right. that would feed into an atmosphere that would make passing a law like this easily. So in my mind, I, I kind of break this down into two areas there's law enforcement and then there's intelligence agencies the way it's supposed to work right. is law enforcement looks inside and intelligence agencies are supposed to look outside yeah so let, let's take law enforcement first um law enforcement agencies in the u.s particularly the fbi have long been claiming that they're quote-unquote going dark that they are increasingly incapable of obtaining useful digital evidence uh, even with a proper warrant and of course they right. blame and end encryption which we've already talked about in applications like signal that enable these sorts of secure communications but do they have do they have a valid point here at some point? You know, are, even if from the Fourth Amendment standpoint, we are kind of our law enforcement agency are supposed to have certain special access when they go to the trouble of getting a court order that grants them certain powers, and this technology will not let that happen. So go back, going back to what I said before, you know, it's always been a balance. Like, there's no Fourth Amendment grant to allow law enforcement to wiretap phones what there is is sort of an agreement that that we can build a system that will comply with the fourth amendment that allows them to do that sort of thing Mm. and we feel as as a country that's 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 an appropriate balance um we've always argued that we're kind of in the golden age of surveillance right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) that that apart from this particular case of being able to reach in and magically tap why tap anyone on the planet uh without leaving your nsa headquarters right apart from that limit the huge explosion in metadata 
right? Yes. Of the the uh, everything apart from the content of communications yeah. actually makes it infinitely more easy to work out what's going on, <laughs> right? Which yeah. is what you want from a surveillance pattern. I mean, the examples are like, okay, supposing I'm talking to um, uh, a suicide helpline and um, I, you can't tell what I'm saying, but I'm standing <laughs> on the Golden Gate Bridge, right? right you right. have all of that data at your fingertips, right? You can get geolocation data um, without a warrant. You can get historical data. You can see records of everybody I've spoken to, exactly when and where I've spoken to, those, to them. You know everybody I email, right? You can yeah. look effectively at my browser history. Like the law enforcement has access now to a vast forest right. of data that determines what suspects are doing, have done, and you know, with statistical analysis, what they're probably going to do tomorrow. That's what everyone freaks out about now, right? If yeah. you, uh, if, well, they you, should you know, be. right, right. So, um. So so we really feel like, you know, the bit that's gone dark, in quotes, for the FBI is drowned out by the, the corona of that, uh, of all of this other information. Secondly, I think the, the point is, is in order to light that particular corner, you're going to have to, like, grab such terrifying powers, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's it's such overkill. And it's 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 damaging to the body politic. Like the thing that I, when I'm trying to convince politicians, um, and I'm the international director, so a lot of time I'm talking to politicians in other countries. You know, the thing that I point out is you're giving this power to other politicians, mm-hmm. right? You're, or, or people within the government. Like there are people within the U.S. government now and GCHQ as well who could put a tap and locate anyone in the u.s government um and uh you know their political opposition Mm -hmm. uh um other ministers what have you it's no one should have that degree of power and if they should we should expose it to absolutely the strongest possible oversight that we can and the tragedy that we're facing right now is as you said most of these powers have been um, created in the dark in the intelligence services. And we have a very bad, I think, tradition of letting the intelligence services do what they want because, hell, it's in another country. <laughs> right. you know, it's not our problem, right? Um, and that's coming home to roost, right? The, the, the pattern of both of these laws in Australia and the UK is... Um, actually from in the UK from court challenges where people went to the courts and said, why, why has the GCHQ got this power? There's no law that says GCHQ can collect data on millions of people. And the courts have said, you know what? There is no law. You're right. Like no one has specifically said that because GCHQ is James Bond territory, right? It's mm. we don't have laws about like he has a license to kill. They have a license to break break laws, right? That's what spies do, just in other countries. And then yeah. when this challenge came through, and the court pointed that out, what these governments have done is 
given a statutory basis for the intelligence agencies and then law enforcement and everybody else has said, hey, we want those powers too. Hmm. And that's been this creeping ability of this Cold War level mass surveillance program slowly being adopted by in, in, the, in Britain, I, I had a battle where the milk marketing board wanted these powers, right? And, like, local authorities wanted these powers to be able to tell whether uh, kids were, parents were lying when they said that they were in the school district. Oh like, I'm not, I'm not kidding, right? Wow. Like, we actually had a major fight on our hands because there was a list of organizations, government organizations, that could have surveillance powers and they just stuck everybody on it because everybody wants these powers because right. they feel they can do good with them so i i, I talked with um phil zimmerman once uh, on the show uh-huh. and he's the for the audience benefit he wrote this program called pretty good privacy which was the gold standard yeah. for actually still for many years uh, for encrypting your emails mm-hmm. and he yeah. likened this to his metaphor was Today is the is the golden age of surveillance. It's more like a it's, we've got this wonderful high resolution 4K television of which there's maybe a couple dark pixels, and there's <laughs> there's so much more going on with the metadata. And I and I I still feel that most people just and I talk about it much on this program don't really grok how much data exhaust we have, and yeah. and how how easy it is to correlate just a few key pieces of that to put it. We have some startling profiles on individuals. So, right. Um, okay. Um, from a practical standpoint, though, um, do we have an idea how many people are actually using end-to-end encryption a day? Because I, I've been trying to get people to use Signal for years, and I can't get any. <laughs> I can't get anybody to use it, let alone you know Wire and some of these other things. Now, people use yeah. iMessage because it's on their phone by default. But you know what? It, how what percentage well, of our communications are really encrypted? That's, I mean, that's one of the, the, the things that I think has brought this to a head. I mean, in some ways, we thought we'd, we'd won this battle over people's, the privacy of people's communications in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a period, and Phil Zimmerman would know this very well because he was under federal investigation because yep. of it. That was the crypto wars, right, where the, the attempt was by the U.S. government to basically prohibit the use of cryptography, strong cryptography, entirely um outside narrow permitted uses and they failed we won our court cases um the export bans were um removed and phil zimmerman went free Mm. um and then there was this sort of cold this phony war where nothing really happened and now we're we're, where we are now and the, the reason why we're here now is because actually more and more people are using end to end encryption um, I think the most significant thing that happened was when WhatsApp mm-hmm. adopted Signal's end-to-end encryption yep. protocol, yep. and 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 that suddenly changed it from, as you say, you know, a, a few million max using any kind of end-to-end encryption to people on the level of billions, and it was easy to use. And um, and you you don't notice it, right? People, right. the big fight that we have is no longer getting people to use end to end encryption, but like them actually knowing when they're using it and when they're not, um, because you know to the end user using Google Hangouts or Facebook Messenger doesn't feel that different from using WhatsApp, but the number of people 
who can see what you're saying and scan it for you know your your behavior and sell you ads based on it is entirely worlds different use facebook messenger um you're 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 open to any to right. facebook looking at what you're you're doing if you're uh if you're using whatsapp only you and the person you're talking to knows what you're saying so um so that's great um uh, so I would say, actually, we don't know how many people, but it's on the order of billions. Um, I mean, we're using it now, right? Like Skype has a pretty terrible mm. I- I- encryption system, but <laughs> it's 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 encrypted. You know, I mean, I we feel that that it can be broken, but it's there, and we, you know, you wouldn't know. I would also say that while the argument and the discussion about these laws concentrates on end-to-end encryption because we as civil liberties advocates want to defend end-to-end encryption and the government kind of wants to get access to end-to-end encryption. The powers are so broad that they really do affect the privacy and security of anything, whether it's protected by kind of hardcore math or not. Um, uh, Some of you may remember, if you're into this kind of thing, the LavaBit case. Mm -hmm. So LavaBit was uh, a service which actually refused a similar order to obtain the key, the magic number that would let the government decode a set of communications. Well, um, you know, LavaBit was in that situation actually because the people using it weren't using end-to-end encryption, right? Right. In end-to-end encryption, they wouldn't have the key. And that, I mean, that wasn't their fault. That was just the nature of the, 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 right, the yeah. system that they had, right? Specifically, in the UK law, one of the th- powers that they really want is what's called uh, watering hole um, attacks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so what, the, uh, what this is, is say I have someone whose communications I want to I, I spy on this person, right? And in order to spy on them, I need to put spyware on their computer. I want to install a program which will sit there and turn their microphone on, rifle through their their emails, download all their contacts. We we see this a lot, uh, um, mainly by um, uh, authoritarian states Mm. do this a, a great deal, partly because they have a lot of enemies that they want to target and they don't care how they target them. Mm-hmm. And partly because they don't have massive surveillance infrastructures. So Ethiopia does this, the United Arab Emirates, and from time to time, the NSA and GCHQ. How do you get that software onto someone's computer? Well, one of the things that you could do is you go, okay, um, we know this person occasionally goes to the BBC News website, right? Like they mm. they like to keep up with the latest ISIS news, right, on the BBC. Mm-hmm. So what we will do is we will give the BBC an order that says we want to be able to use your infrastructure to deliver malware and spyware to um, uh, to a particular user. And the investigative powers bill has a similar method of compelling anyone from a cyber cafe, from a, they don't call them that anymore, do they? The, the, <laughs> just a, a cafe, a cafe mm. um, with Wi-Fi mm-hmm. um, to 
to um, the New York Times, right? Like, and commandeer these places to deliver spyware. Um, that that is somewhat akin to. Uh, do you remember when the CIA wedged around pretending to be um, to be vaccinating um, uh, people against smallpox? Right, like this is this is the idea that you that the intelligence services and law enforcement can commandeer anyone to and uh, to be a branch of law enforcement. Mm. You should have some reasonable belief. Yeah. That if you go to these websites, you're not going to be targeted for spyware or malware. And that's the other part of this, right? That we think of this, and EFF definitely thinks of this, in terms of coders, programmers, people who build these secure systems. But, you know, in a, in a digital world, everyone kind of has, or a huge number of people have, if you have a website, you are one of these these middlemen that law enforcement and the intelligence services sees as a legitimate way of delivering spyware and conducting surveillance. And I just think that's a that's that's a a, a, a Stasi way of thinking about <laughs> the general public. You know, oh, yeah. that everyone has an obligation to help out in this way and a, a legal obligation now too. So the the other point I was uh, I wanted to make before we wrap up here um, about a lot of these technologies and you know it, so if some of these companies say that they don't want to comply and and so now the government says okay well your your applications must be removed from everybody's phones it's outlawed you can't use these applications yeah at the end of the day encryption is really is really just math and it, more to the point even if even beyond math a lot of these programs signal included. Is open source. It's, I have a I have a copy of this on my hard drive right now because it's open source software. Right. Anybody can download right. it, and and there's, it would be trivial to circumvent this. As a developer, I could write an app to you know tonight that I could put right. on my phone and anybody else's phone, and we could just keep going. Yeah, I mean, in the uh, the height of the crypto wars, um, when it was seen to be an offense to actually carry the idea of. <laughs> strong cryptography outside the united states right people would put it in their emails in the signature of their emails four line pearl programs that could do rsa encryption people would tattoo it onto their mm -hmm. arm mm -hmm. and they you know they weren't they weren't long arms you could fit in um a, a lot into, into <laughs> that um but you know this is a bit like this is a bit like the the drug war right in your, you're in a situation you want to achieve through legal aims through, law, through the law, uh, something that is basically unachievable, that the incentives, the capabilities are just so prevalent and so ubiquitous um, that uh, you, 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 can't, you can't stop people. So what do you do? Well, if you're set on this goal, the sad truth is, is what happens with governments is they just keep on raising the stakes, right? Um, if you uh, if if you can't um, uh, control the border, then you end up trying to control the countries next to the border, right? Mm. You try and um, putting more and more weaponry on the streets. You try and like uh, you you just try and stack the deck. <laughs> and I think you describe very accurately what I anticipate happening next. What I anticipate happening next is not actually an instant Orwell, 
right? What I imagine will happen is that that uh, people will, like you say, use other encryption tools, and the response to the the government will be to work out ways of herding people to um, backdoor systems and um, quote dissuading people from using strong cryptography. What does that look like? I think you've described it, right? You have to pass a law saying we will block certain protocols. We will um, say that you you can't use Signal or you can't use foreign uh, messaging systems, mm. right? Uh, you then have to block websites or you then actually have to compel Apple and Google to do more oversight or introduce new rules to their their stores, their app stores. And that's the, uh, you look at that now, and I think people now will go, that's insane. The idea that the, 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 the US government or other governments would block a particular protocol or have lawful requirements that lock down phones and mean you can only play, use certain software. That is, that's insane. But I, I mean, I can't guarantee because I don't want this to happen. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're arguing right now about whether governments should have the ability to rewrite software on, on uh, their own whim. And if you buy into their arguments about why they should have that huge power, it really isn't that much of a step to say they should also have the power to control what you have on your device and control... Uh, what traffic goes over the internet. And honestly, both of those things, there are governments in the world who, who, who've abrogated themselves that power. Yeah. And just because it, it, it's, it's not impractical, the only thing holding it back is the general public's horror at that, that, that idea, right? And I would say that for most people, this is not like one of the things that is most high on their list right, of, yeah. of, of horrors, right? I think that the people who feel this most viscerally are technologists and technology users. People understand these systems and they see what that means. And I think everybody should understand that this is a stepping stone to that and i don't i really don't mean that in a kind of slippery slope if we you know if we allow this then they'll come after our children kind of thing <laughs> i mean this in a if you buy in to the idea that the governments need and law enforcement's need to look into people's lives is so important that they should be able to bend or break the protections that we have online then you should probably be okay with them blocking protocols and blocking software that that would take that power away from the government. And I have to say that every time I deal with people, very reasonable people on the other side who make these arguments, every time the, tab the, the table odds change, they will make the the next argument very naturally. Yeah, I, I've struggled this myself, and I've had several forums where I've interacted with people and had healthy debates about these issues. And and there's there are definitely 
quite a few people who just look at this as I have nothing to hide. I'd rather be safe or I'd rather feel secure. I'd rather give up that liberty for security. At least that's what mm-hmm. they believe they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And it, how do you, how do we, how do we convince these people? How do we, what's it going to take to make these, you know, Cambridge Analytica, I think came close. I, I think that, yeah. I think yeah. that raised some eyebrows and, and maybe set off some spidey <laughs> senses for some people, but we right. still haven't had the incident yet that, I, I feel that has really like caused the the general populace, the non technical populace, to wake up and understand what's at stake here. And what I'm really afraid of is what you mentioned earlier: is that before that happens, we're going to have another terrorist attack where it goes the other way. What? How do we? Yeah. yeah. Before that happens, but how do we? How do we reach people? How do we get the average person, the people in my audience, to really understand the implications of this and and take some and action? And what action would they take if they if they wanted to? So I think about this all, all, all the time, obviously, this is kind of my job. Um, <laughs> and um, I'll say that we were uh, uh, the other day at, at, at EFF, we were um, we were talking about the, the classic, you know, I have nothing to hide line. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because everyone there had a different counter argument that they've mm-hmm. used. And we're actually thinking of sort of pulling them all together mm-hmm. and actually writing, write, writing them up because we often, not only do we often get people saying, well, I have nothing to hide. We also get people like you saying, everybody tells me they have nothing to hide. What do I say? Yeah. I'll tell you my, my, my version of it, right? Which is that, well, you may not have something to hide, but you probably know somebody who does, um, whether it's somebody in your family or your friends who has something that they need to protect from someone else some secret that means that 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 it's not a bad thing but it's something that that if it was more widely known would be terrible for them or would have terrible consequences and you should perhaps spend a few minutes trying to think if, if that's the case or even just historical figures right your mm. heroes like uh you know George Washington had something to hide, yeah. right? Like yeah. Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela had something to hide, right? Yeah. Um, and if you're building a system, we're not done yet, right? We're not done in um, in, in getting the and protecting the freedoms that we, we we take for granted. And if this is something that you don't feel that you need to use right now, that's fine. But the people who defend you, the people who protect you, um, or the people you look up to, because they do things that, that are impossibly brave, right? Braver than I would ever be able to do. They need those those protections. So that's, you know, that's my shtick, right? Like, because yeah. I think people, I think, honestly, most people actually, I deal with this a lot with journalists, right? And journalists yeah, are kind sure. of like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm strong, right? I'm, I'm brave. Like, I've got into this to tell the public things right i don't have any secrets and then we sit down and this is terrible right because that means they use incredibly insecure communication systems and um and i and you know what we say to them is we say okay but do you have other people that you know Mm -hmm. who need to protect secrets and they go oh yeah i have all my sources blah 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 you go did they share those secrets with you? <laughs> and they go, oh, I see what you're you're saying here. Yeah. Right? So you often have to get people out of the mindset of, of, of their own innocence, right? Um, uh, uh, anybody who's actually gone through a police interrogation 
is much less likely to claim that they have nothing to hide because it turns out that even the most innocent things are things that 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 can be turned against you so but then anyway that's that's the the big picture and in terms of like the tactics and the strategy of this the thing that makes this hard is because technology and I, when i say technology i mean it in the sense of like some new machine that has happened in your lifetime right like something that is a little bit incomprehensible people don't have a visceral feeling right. for its capabilities or its 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 failures or how it works and i would say that that my experience as a digital activist for 20 years or so is that that slowly changes what we're seeing right now and snowden was a part of this and cambridge analytica was a part of this is people realizing the consequences of digital technology for good and for bad right mm -hmm. and what you're seeing in this sort of rising anxiety so we took polls right after snowden because we were you know is this going to really change anything you know this in some ways this is this is the ultimate vindication of what we've been saying yeah right is, right yeah uh, uh but you know the fear is is that does, does this do people just go oh, i guess this happens and then go on with their life <laughs> So we, we, we looked at how people changed and it was interesting, right? I would say that, um, people are still actually pretty trusting of government, even in America. Um, and the more distance and abstract the government is, the more trusting they are. Mm -hmm. They're really not trusting of their local police. <laughs> Huh, right? like the people that they encounter right they're, 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 they're not they're not super trustful of um but if you go to like the nsa or something like that then actually you know they they have some strong faith in that and huh. that's surprising yeah you know right i i think that's a, that's an interesting flip and what what one might expect interesting um the uh, uh, uh but two things one is that they really hate their phone companies and their cable companies. <laughs> yeah. They really don't trust them. Sure. And um, and they have a generalizing, ri rising anxiety about their personal data, right? They really do realize that they don't have much control over the personal data and that it can have a really strong effect on their lives. Um so this is almost like a shift. The, the, if you look at uh, people's sentiments, nothing really changed, has changed much over the last few years in, in, most, in most capacities. But people are more anxious. And that thing you described about, like, I have nothing to hide is slowly going down. Mm. <laughs> and I think what that's down to is people uh, begin to realize that, as you described, the kind of toxic waste, the, the trail that they leave of private data is actually a, a worrying thing yeah and what we have to do is we have to stop governments from just kind of ramming through these 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 plans before we really have understand lawmakers and and um uh, population the general populace alike what the ramifications of those things are and we have to just keep explaining and keep making visceral 
what the consequences are. Um, and finally, people people get it, right? Like, there's nothing magically um, wise about technologists. Mm. I, I, I'm sorry to say, right? <laughs> it's just that we, we, we use this stuff all the time. Yeah. And that means we've developed a little bit of an intuition as to when, as to what things are a really bad idea to yeah, do, right. you know, in the same way as like, if you're watching someone use a computer and you're going, Oh, don't click on that. No, don't do that. Right. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's the same thing. You're like, don't, don't give the government this power. That's a really bad idea. Um, and that intuition just gradually spreads and we, ha and we work on ways of, conveying that intuition and making people feel that and i think right now they feel it they just don't know what to do with that feeling or who to aim it at like do they blame mark zuckerberg do they blame donald trump do they blame the australian government like what can you do yeah and 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 i mean you can join the eff um <laughs> yes you can donate to us yes but, um you can become a member all of those things but um Mainly you can talk to your friends, right? You can explain these things to them too because, you, you know, there's, there's power in numbers. You can walk the walk. You can, um, you can download secure software. You can explain to people why um, uh, that's important. Um, you can download ad-blocking tools and privacy badger and, yeah. and, and, and tools like this that will protect people against tracking and explain why that's important. And you can sort of paint people out the consequences. Um, and I think that's that. And I think we're going in the right direction, right? I really don't think that a few years ago, our biggest worry was privacy nihilism, where people would just yeah. like give up. And I see less giving up these days. Well, Danny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Those are wonderful tips. And, uh, I, I send people your way all the time in terms of, you know, the guides, the wonderful, helpful, helpful guides you've got on your, um, website and the the plugins for your the browser that you guys created and you guys are doing some wonderful work and uh, of course i also hardly recommend people to send you guys some money and when you get the little stickers back that come with your donation probably display them <laughs> somewhere if nothing else it will start some conversations and you know awareness and education is really the the foundation for all of this so thank you so much for coming on the show thank you thank you so much ben. <laughs> Big thanks, big thanks again to uh, Danny O'Brien to coming on and talking to us about this subject. It's so, so important. Um, tell your friends, tell your family, bring the, you know, it, have a healthy debate about these subjects. They're, they're important. Whenever the opportunity comes up, uh, discuss these things because we don't do that enough. I think we kind of just assume that, oh, that'll never happen. Or, you know, again, some of us, I think, still have this notion of, well, I've got nothing to hide. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather have the law enforcement agencies be able to look at all my stuff because I haven't, you know, there's nothing going on there. Why not? Um, it's, it's really not that simple. And we talked about a couple of things in, uh, toward the end of this interview that I want to make sure if you haven't done already, I know I've been beating this horse for a while. Um, but I'll put the links in the show notes. One of them is the Ted talk on privacy by Glenn Greenwald. That's a great one to, to go look at. And I, I'll just whip out, the, the Edward Snowden quote that I always, you know, that I always go to that I think really sums this up so well. And that is saying you don't care about privacy because you have nothing to hide is like saying you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. It's not just about you. It's about 
everybody, everybody in society, everybody in your democracy, it's important. It's a, it's a fundamental human right, and it's you don't you don't argue about rights. You, a right is a right. It's, you don't have to pass a law to grant a right. A right is inherent, and even though it wasn't you know spelled out explicitly in the U.S. Constitution, I, I would argue that it's because they didn't foresee this situation where it would become such an issue. You know, mass dragnet surveillance is so possible now. Uh, the tools are ubiquitous. They're ever they're all over the place. Cameras, microphones, your your smartphone, uh, all these internet connected devices are now capable of tattling on you. And in many cases, they are mostly for the purposes of marketing today. But man, that could really be used for some nefarious purposes. And as we've already seen with Cambridge Analytica and some other things, and I, it already has, and I'm sure that there are some other big ones we have not yet uncovered. So one more thing I'd really like to recommend that you do, and this is an essay that I just recently rediscovered myself. Um, there's an essay by Bruce Schneier, and it's called The Value of Privacy. And I will put a link to the show notes, but if you are the kind of person that goes and looks at the show notes, just search Google for Bruce Schneier. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R, Bruce Schneier, and The Value of Privacy. And read that essay. He does a really good job of laying out why privacy is more than, you know, if you've got nothing to hide. And he's also got some great books, by the way. I would recommend any of his most recent ones. He's a world-renowned cryptographer. He literally wrote the book that was the Bible of applied cryptography for many, many years, probably still is. Um, but in recent years, he's done a lot more policy-oriented stuff, and he's been called, you know, he's testified in front of Congress and um, been making the rounds with all sorts of think tanks. He's a, a real forward thinker on this and an important person in, in this debate. Uh, so I would recommend the books, too. If you like the essay, read the books. Um, Beyond Fear is probably uh, a really good one, or Data and Goliath is one of my favorites. You check that one out. Anyway, find this essay. Um, again, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can find it there. To It's not that long, but it's a, it's a really good read. All right, just two more quick things, and I'll let you go. I know we've had a, a really long episode today. Um, donate to the EFF. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is... As you can probably tell, because I've had several, several people um, come and interview here on the show, uh, is one of my favorite organizations. They're doing some really great work and, uh, and all over the spectrum. And I would you know, take the time to send those guys a little bit of money. And again, like I said in the, in, during the interview, if you know, they send you, I think you can offer to get uh, little stickers or whatever. Put that sticker up and let somebody ask you, hey, what's EFF? And then you can tell them and you can point them to all these resources that we've been talking about, including this podcast and the book, whatever. Um, it's just another opportunity to spark conversation and to draw some light onto uh, the really great work that those guys are doing. And last but not least, two more episodes until my pod centennial, my 100th episode. I'm so excited. Uh, it's going to be a really fun episode and we're going to be giving away a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, I've got five signed copies of my book to give away. Uh, a press has donated about another, gosh, maybe another half dozen cybersecurity books. And I'm going to throw in a couple of my own as well. Some of my favorite books. And you know what? I'll, I'll even throw in a data and Goliath from Bruce Schneier. I love that book. So we'll, we'll make that part of the package, but you have to be listening to win. And I'm trying to reach more people. So spread the word. 
put it on your social media. Tell your friends and families. I, you know, enjoy the podcast. And this is the one you're not want to, you're not going to want to miss. It's a great uh, if you haven't listened already. It's a great starting point, and you'll get a chance to uh, a chance to win some stuff, uh, some really good stuff. So again, that's coming January 28th. That also happens to be Data Privacy Day, International Data Privacy Day. So we're going to focus on. Uh, personal privacy uh, and we'll have a lot of great info so tune in for that it's gonna be a really great show um just two more weeks and until then stay safe and don't get caught with your garbage now